Welcome to the SHBC Podcast. We're the Sunday Hustlers Book Crew. My name is Ezra. My name is Robert. I'm Patty X. We're three close friends here to share our love for books and literature with the world, whether you're a local San Antonian or from across the globe. Each season, we will discuss our favorite books we've read recently. And if you like what you hear, join our conversation on our website, shbcpodcast.com, and follow us on our social media. Before we get started, we wanted to say a little bit about ourselves and why we started the podcast. We started the pod, the Sunday Hustlers book crew, to inspire more people to read and encourage readers to expand themselves. And so why don't we take this time to introduce ourselves to our listeners. Uh, For me, my name is Ezra. I love discussing books and engaging and thought-provoking perspectives with different people. A big inspiration for me to join the podcast was a class I took in college. Uh, It was a study in leadership and how the human condition changed in certain books. And it was a great discussion. It was a big thing for me. And so when Robert came to the idea with uh, the Sunday Hustlers book crew, I jumped to the chance. Was that book club like a... One type of book only? Like you're specifically looking for those kind of like human condition books? Yeah, yeah. It was like a whole theme of just human conditions. Uh, we did one for like someone traveling in Antarctica, 9-11, uh, oh, Things Fall Apart. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was great. Um, it was, yeah, it was really cool. Really great discussions on like. It sounds like. Human yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, it no was joke. a lot of writing. <laughs> Hey, oh, Hustlers. I am Patty X. I'm an independent writer from San Antonio that specializes in speculative fiction and experimental poetry. I hold a BA in English from the University of Texas, and my research areas include post-postmodernism, intersectionality, and decolonialism. Like my fellow cohorts, I'm a lifelong reader, and frankly, I'm just super excited to finally be able to share my love of literature with uh, the podcast world and with all the cool listeners out there. And yeah. I think we did save the best for last. Go Thanks. Ahead, well, I have the same ambitions as Patty and ever, as we do, <laughs> honestly. Like, yeah, but I don't have too much of a background in books other than I just love reading constantly. Uh, you know, but growing up, there wasn't a lot of people that you know. Like in high school, reading's not that cool. Kind of stop, mm-hmm. put it aside. You don't get those fun discussions. You read what you're, what you're taught, you know. Mm-hmm. When you get out of it and you start reading more, you're like, oh, but there's nobody to talk to. But then I meet Patty. I meet Ezra. Dad owns a bookstore. Just... It all comes together. Yeah. And we discuss these books so often, it's just like other people would like to join in on that conversation. So we yeah. just hope to spread like our love for literature to everybody else too. Mm-hmm. That's that's what the Yeah. I remember this uh quote my dad always tells people, it's like, uh, when you buy a book, you're buying the time to read it. You know? Uh, I always think about that. I wonder how you think about that, like the time to read it, because you have to put that aside, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, uh, today we're going over Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa. Uh, so we'll be discussing a brief overview of the book, the author, some excerpts from interviews to get a foundation of where the author is coming from, and then we're going to dive into themes, plots, characters, and more. And so um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the author? So like, as I said, we're going to be reading the Memory Police today, or talking about the Memory Police. It's written by Yoko Ogawa and translated by Steven Snyder. Yoko Ogawa was born in Okayama in 1962. She studied creative writing at Waseda University, and she currently lives in Ashaya, Japan, with her husband and son. She's the author of 40 novels and short story collections, but here in America, we're, I think in tr- English translations, we only get five. Uh, 
Uh, so the memory police is right now is the top one. I I personally think that's probably yeah. her most popular one. Yeah, it's a little mm-hmm. shame we only get uh, five translations from her, but right. I, I think that uh, the world, the uh, English speaking world, will see probably see more of Yoko Ogawa. I'm pretty Thanks, sure. Steven Snyder. Shout uh, out, you to really you. shout out, Steven Snyder. Thank <laughs> you. Well, really quick on Steven Snyder, like he is a professor of Japanese and the dean of the language schools and vice president of academic affairs there. So. He's been translating a book for over 30 years. Like, wow. All about it, yeah. Yeah, that was a really long time. But he does other Japanese authors, too, so it's just not her, so he's got a talent for it. Very cool. Yeah, so the book was originally published in 1994, uh, not translated till last year in 2019, and the copies that we own are by Pantheon. They own uh, pretty much the translation copyright. They're owned by Penguin Random House. They released theirs on August 13th and then sold, I guess, to UK, where it was really popular, uh, to Haverhill Secker on the 15th, so... Because of that, in America, it was up for a National Book Award, and in the UK, it was up for the International Book Award, and also the finalists for the 2020 uh, Fantasy Award. So A lot of buzz. Yeah, yeah it really yeah. was. Especially in America, it hit really hard over here. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the historical background of the book is really interesting, too, because uh, for us, it's called The Memory Police, but its original title is Kisoyaka Nakesho, uh, a Japanese metaphor for something precious that forms in the dark recesses of suppression, roughly translated to secret civilizations. So just an altered title, if you want to think about that while you read the book. Uh, which brings me to the most important history this book relates to, and that's Ogawa's uh, inspiration for this novel, which is Anne Frank. Uh, it seems like she almost dedicated it entirely to Anne Frank's diary as a memory piece. And so as we discuss a testament to the resilience of the human spirit in both constricting worlds, uh, we'll also try to compare the very self-control it took Anne Frank to find a way to exist in a world of silence within and the same kind of world where it's chaotic outside. Lots to dive into. It's going to be great. Yeah, no, it, it's great. Uh, if you haven't read it, make sure to go to the local bookstore and go get it soon. Um, why don't we go ahead and start getting into the just kind of whole topic of the book? Yeah, um, definitely. Let's, yeah. you should you just dive right in? Yeah, let's do it. Go ahead, buddy. <laughs> okay, I guess I, I'll just probably kick it off. I'm going to probably, um, y'all probably heard enough about the book. You probably want to know what it's about. So <laughs> I'll give you a little plot synopsis. So. The Memory Police, originally published in 1994, translated in 2019. It's a novel that takes about uh, a small unnamed island in which objects, ideas, and people have been disappearing for um, kind of an unknown amount of time. Well, actually, it's 15 years. Oh, 15 yeah, years. Yeah, there's a time. There's a time. Mm. They, they, they track it, yeah. Oh, okay. So actually, they've been disappearing. So objects, ideas, and people have been disappearing for a known amount of time for yeah. about 15 years. Uh, but it's still very strange. It is, re- no, yeah. regardless, yeah. But it's just weird how, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> no, I think it's important, yeah. And yeah. so the story uh, starts like all great ones do uh, in media res, and the plot uh, of the Memory Police follows a young, unnamed writer, who editor, only known by the letter R, which I can barely say, <laughs> and a friend who we only know as the old man. Uh, these three characters navigate life on the island and attempt to circumnavigate the memory police. The memory police themselves are an authoritarian government police force that oversees the island, society, and the disappearance of memories. When the young writer discovers that her editor, R, may be a target of the memory police, she and the old man create a secret room to hide R. As the memory police's disappearances become increasingly aggressive and draconian, the trio begin to begin smuggling disappeared objects not to preserve the past, but to preserve their own identity as well. Well yeah. said. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. That very much sums it up there. I mean, 
try to that's hit it, all boys. the ba- you know, all the basic things that get into DNA. Because from how I read it, like um, I don't know, it's pretty confusing because you don't get the end games of what really goes on. So I suggest not reading it, looking for an answer about who the memory police are and like what their goal is. Because it's kind of confusing, like why they're taking the memory. Because it seems like they're confused about it too. But to read it and follow how the narrator's dialogue between the characters kind of dampens the frustrations that we ask ourselves on why these memories are disappearing. So everyone she encounters, whether it be at the gathering for what's going to be forgotten, like when certain things disappear, they all gather. Yeah. Or for how she handles her experience when she goes to the MP headquarters, uh, that's just an odd care. That's just an odd situation too. But uh, all the conversations she has and how she tolerates it are just very soothing reactions. So I think that's part of the book where I like people to focus on what they read. And then, um, yeah, just kind of the, the mindset she puts you in, Ogawa puts you in for the narrator. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, for me, when I read it, I had just a big connection to the imagery. A lot of it had this great, uh, created a lot of emotion uh, that was kind of embedded in the setting. And it's sometimes described as like a simple, small island, but the author's vision for the island, the main character's home, and the rooms these characters are kind of stuck in, uh, are provided such detail to give it emotional context rather than just the physical description. So uh, for me, when they got stuck in a room or something, uh, or they moved across different places, there is a deeper message for me giving a more imagination to this setting. As I read the book, I couldn't help but imagine myself as like a child, like visiting family or going to my dad's study and how those rooms made me feel. Sometimes I would get like a sense of belonging or love or friendship or abandonment or loss, you know, in a room. And I think if you've ever felt this way in life or experienced these feelings when you walked into a room, I think you're going to find a really good connection to this book like I did. Especially current times. It's almost kind of hard to think about what life yeah. is like differently. Oh, totally. Or like totally. something changes just like abruptly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, Thanksgiving just passed and there's just like a different air about it, you know? Uh, and I think that's kind of something that also brought me back to this book. There's little things in like life where you're just like, man, I keep thinking about this book. So interpretive, like mm-hmm. you could have we have one discussion, somebody else could have another. It just goes on and on. It's so mm-hmm. reflective. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love that like even when you when, when like an object in the book is disappeared, it's like so much more than the object. It really makes you like, oh, yeah. like it really reminds you that a memory is like so much more than just like this this intangible thing in your head. It's like an, an entire sensory kind of experience. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, but don't try to like read it and think like, oh, what's the importance of each item disappeared? Because that's kind of not really what the book is about. It's more like the patience the writer takes in describing the setting. It makes it seem like as if our eyes are moving slowly across the setting with them. And it's vital because it lets us explore our own emotions and our own memories that give us a deeper connection to the characters. And so it's the themes the novel as a whole, and so after I read this, I couldn't help go back and recall some of the little moments of my life that make up everything I am today. Whereas they try to do that, but it can't because those memories have disappeared. You have people like R, who she hires, her editor, who maintain that, but at the end of it, who is he really if he's locked up? Yeah. He, he, doesn't, does. he doesn't exist either. He's disappeared technically too, but he's everything that the world isn't outside. Yeah. Pretty o- crazy. Ogawa, uh, she does such a really great job of uh, personifying the uh, experience of loss and kind of focusing the story on kind of the the intimate uh, character sketches of these three people as they kind of deal with things on the island. And I think that 
as we start to maybe discuss and get into the memory police a little more, I think that a, a great place to start is with that weird island. And so, <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually have a quote from Ogawa herself about uh, the importance of setting in her work. This quote is from an interview conducted with Yoko Ogawa by Itukara Kimi from Nippon.com. And uh, Ogawa says, uh, talking about the relevance of setting a new book, if I think about it, I've always written stories about people shut in small spaces. This may be connected with Anne and Frank, but I have a feeling that small spaces are safe. In the end, I always imagine the same kind of place. I can write with a sense of reassurance about a space with a clear outline. I can't write an adventure where the characters break out beyond that. She just makes that happen. Oh my gosh, yeah. So much of, and like, so much of the, the memory police and like the story of this great book itself revolve around like the island and it's like abstract memory power. What did you guys like uh, think about this, the setting itself? Were you able to like get a, a, a grip on like what, what the power was or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, um, especially more in the middle to late part of the book. I think it, it's a little bit easier to recognize how the experiences affected the setting, but they're still there in the early part of the book, uh, especially when they go in the basement. Mm. Um, the small yeah. objects that disappeared first. You know? Like mm-hmm. that's what I'm saying earlier. Not to kind of consider why mm-hmm. it's just small things at first, like mm-hmm. the items that they find later. Yeah, are just something like, oh, I'm surprised your mother took such care of something like this. Well, yeah, and like the first, I just think of the first couple pages with the dresser. You know, oh, okay. Um, you know that I think. I think it's a really cool reflection of the island. I get what uh, you're saying. Because, you know, the dresser has all these compartments in there, and the mother is showing all these objects that have disappeared. That's kind of how the island is. There's all these little pockets and drawers yeah. oh, of wow, that's, different things in there. That's oh, that's like so blew my mind. Deep. Yeah, yeah really. wonderful. Wow. <laughs> well, too, if you consider it also, like, all those things must have been disappearing before the memory police showed up. Mm-hmm. Because, as she yeah. said, it's been 15 years since the memory police showed up. And that's when they like kind of took her mother. It's the very beginning mm-hmm. of the story. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So you have to think, what did the, what was the island, or is it the people? You know. Whenever I read this book, I just um, I, I just always imagined that there was just like a kind of like a permanent kind of like fog on the island. Oh yeah. Even if even if there wasn't, she, I just felt like like you could never see too clearly. Like there was always this fog, kind of like obscuring mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I I couldn't agree more. Well. Start getting more of the characters that we can oh, actually yeah, definitely. get more yeah. the book. <clears throat> so, like, uh, the memory police basically just revolves around four specific characters, and uh, we'll try to introduce them as they appear. So, for now, we have the protagonist. It's our first character. We only know her as the narrator. Uh, she's a novelist. That's her career in the book. She's introduced to us as someone who has already forgotten the memories of what's already disappeared. But we learn to do, like as I said, a flashback into her childhood when her mother shows her items that only she remembers. And uh, she's kept them secret, and she had them, I guess, after they disappeared. And later, a narrator mentions that it had been 15 years when she first noticed the arrival of the MP, so we can assume she's in her mid-late 20s, because she must have been a child. So, yeah. But it's through her eyes that we meet each character. We experience each morning when something new has disappeared, and the terrorizing anticipation of the memory police showing up at any time. And it's through her eyes that we also get to witness like her secret rebellion, and it's just the one of many. But for us, the reader, and Rogawa, it's going to be a little different. This one has the heart that you get to witness, you get to witness a true experience on the island. Yeah. Uh, the, ne- the, next kind of ga- the next kind of character is uh, the old man, 
and he's uh, one of those linchpin characters that makes the uh, whole story of the Memory Police possible. He's an old man that our narrator has known her whole life. He's described as a jack-of-all-trades, a former fairy mechanic before fairies were disappeared with a set of handyman skills, and with that, uh, handy, with those handyman skills, he kind of helps the narrator's plan to hide or come to fruition. Uh, without him, I wouldn't have that uh, sweet condo on the bottom floor. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. so weird. I still can't describe, I can't imagine what the room looks like. Cause she says it's floating in between two spaces. So I think yeah. it's like a storage room that, I guess it's a, it goes, it's like a hatch. So she's going down, but it's floating in between. I guess maybe, I don't know I, how the structure of the house is. Maybe. You know, I, I oh. think part of, Part of the like, like her, her intention, uh, w- just with the house, really quick, uh, is that like she wants to like describe it in a way that doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Like she That's wants true. to intentionally use all these describe it in like weird ways. You're like, wait, if you're trying to make the architecture, like it doesn't. It work, doesn't make sense. Know? Like, is it just like is there space underneath ours room between the four? You know, like is it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just. Get, getting oh. back to the, the old man, so yeah, he makes that sweet condo that we have no idea how he made it or how it's shaped. For- we oh. know how he made it, yeah, but how it looks really. Most of uh, and for most of the story, the old man is alongside the protagonist, uh, experiencing and accepting disappearances with this uh, sense of resignation and gentle melancholy. However, uh, I do want to say that even with this kind of like uh, resignation and this melancholy that he has for these uh, disappearances, in a critical moment in the story. Uh, when an unnamed narrator tells him, uh, first hatches her plot and tells him that it could cost him his life, he just looks at her, puts on his sunglasses, and replies, the little I have left. He didn't actually put on the sunglasses, but yeah. yeah he does a say more virtuous. Yeah. <laughs> but that's be really cool. You make him sound like, like a superhero. Or yeah, like, like this is some like rom-com. <laughs> no, he's like that old Bruce Willis-like type guy now. Ah, uh, yep, die hard. <laughs> little old go. man who's just swole. Yeah, he's like going to be one of the Expendables next. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next character we have is R. He's the editor that our narrator for we're coming decides to harbor in her walls. He had no idea um, her and an old man had already devised the escape and had already built his hideaway. R had one night revealed that he still has memories and just like uh, the main character's mother has never forgotten the memories. So already on edge from experiencing uh, the twice uh, firsthand how the memory police can also disappear people, uh, the narrator immediately devises a plan to keep him alive. And R, without hesitation, uh, has to leave his life behind, his job, his wife, unborn child, to purposely disappear and live in secrecy while the West, the rest of the world continues to disappear beyond walls. Yeah, and then uh, I guess the, the last character uh, of the book are like the memory police them, themselves. Uh, the title of the book is called The Memory Police, but we unfortunately never find out too much about uh, the memory police or the motives themselves. All that we really gather through reading reading the book, uh, just just trying to focus on like the memory police the character, is that they have some way of uh, controlling memories and controlling what gets disappeared on the island. I think what's more important than that, though, is that uh, they operate um, almost parallel and with the, that same uh, uh, brutality and ferocity as of Nazi Germany, and um, the p- most pertinent thing that comes to my mind when I think about the memory police is a quote. From the book itself, uh, our narrator says it. She says, the first, the first duty of the memory police was to reinforce the disappearance. And that's 
uh, the long and short of everything you find out about them. Yeah, so with everybody to gather together, you have the whole the whole book. So together, the novelist, the old man, and our they just bear every increasing presence of the memory, please, because it just gets stronger and stronger on the island. With the memories and the hope that R still has in his heart and his soul, that's how they describe it. That's what he believes, keeping him memories, uh, that his young novelist and the old man can overcome that, that phenomenon that they can't understand. And so it'll just kind of teach us what the power of memory just has a hold on us somehow. Yeah. Different ways. And so uh, kind of like uh, looking at both you guys, so looking at how the memory police functions as like a piece of literature with the narrative arc, for me, it's kind of hard uh, to decide whether the book is like more like plot driven by like the island or something like that. Or, like, it's more character-driven by, like, the story and, like, the just, like, personification of the disappearances. On one hand, like, the story behind the story uh, suggests, and, the, and, like, the way that the island's memory power eventually consumes the plot uh, suggests that the novel is uh, more driven by the larger framing tale. However, um, <laughs> Ogawa, Ogawa has an intimate hyper-focus on, like, one character, and this character is kind of, like, on the margins and the way that she elevates, like, this protagonist, like, her personal trials uh, makes me think that uh, even with, like, that grandiose framing tale, you know, the whole civilization collapsing thing, uh, that the true heart <laughs> of the story is actually, like, the narrator's journey and, like, her personal meditations on memory. Y'all have any, uh, what do y'all feel like? Do you well, think it's, like, more character-driven, more plot-driven? I'm trying to get a hold on this here. Yeah, that last part where you talk about how it's just, like, a chart of the story, like, where mm-hmm. they, the narrator's personal journey and loss, that's exactly where you hit the note, because... I'd say that it's more character-driven at, at that point because earlier it's, uh, import, I mentioned the importance of the encounters between our characters. Yeah. And when our narrator like over, uh, converses with others on the island, we just see those moments where everybody's, I guess, not really compliant, but they just kind of like let it go. They just kind of keep adapting. But it's in those conversations which are written by Agawa in a voice that somehow maintains peacefulness. We just notice how much more freaking and unbelievable the disappearances start to occur. And it's in the complacency of their dialogue that we are kept reading and compelled to endure each of those tribulations uh, of our three main characters that they encounter till the very last sentence. They're, they're enduring both till the very end, all three. Mm-hmm. So all this is happening while the memory police just start enforcing their secret mission more aggressively, more openly. Okay, yeah, no, I can, I can kind of, I, I do kind of get that, like that it's really like the, especially because we just talked about like the characters it's kind of fresh in my mind but like the kind of like that internal triumvirate formed by the three characters of like one character who can't forget one character who has kind of a link to the past which would be the old man and then a character who can remember and it's kind of like maybe about how this triumvirate um who will represent like maybe like these three stages of memory like process the, these losses and stuff like that it, I, That's I can, interesting. yeah um i i can i could definitely see that but um what, what, do you, what do you think about this? I, I think it's definitely a plot-driven novel um, because it's kind of dictated by the disappearances and the characters are usually reacting um, to everything going on. So um, as these disappearances go on, they have to adapt to this new wife uh, burning and destroying everything and hiding R and such like that. And as the disappearances get stronger, you know, the characters are affected to it. Um, though uh, I do see, I mean, we do have that hyper-focus, like yeah. you said, on the characters. Um, it's just kind of how we, uh, that's our perspective from just the narrator. But I, I think it's definitely plot-driven because uh, just reacting to all of the things that the memory police are doing. Kind of like 
they overcome everything a little easily. Kind of hard. They have they run into almost every problematic situation. That's true. They always run into the memory police and they get out of it. Mm-hmm. But it's like the it's like when you're it's like the connections that you get to see between how they get through it though. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um and I guess they I mean, they're all coming together and get this focus on like their emotion, I feel like is mm-hmm. a big part. At least for the narrator, yeah. you have that emotion in every little thing. Uh and but I, I still think, yeah, the memory police it has just like this invisible hand that's yeah. like controlling everything. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, um, let me let me push back though a little bit on you because you did you did concede that there was like this very really emotional core to the book, but you also at the same time it's being pushed by this invisible hand. But let me ask you about this. So, how do you think that uh, the meta narrative, uh, that is, um, the story that the protagonist is writing uh, within the memory police, like the book itself? How do you think that the inclusion of like the story within a story fits into that overall plot? How do you think that that works into your invis your invisible hand? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, it, it's really cool. I know we've talked about this, Robert, a lot. Um, this is just a cool part of the book. Um, but this story that the main character is writing, I think, is a reflection of every all the disappearances that um, are happening in her real life, and so though. She doesn't seem to process them openly uh, to everyone. We kind of, everything is kind of shut in, I guess, but uh, there's little things that come out to express how she really feels about everything, and it's mm-hmm. in that meta-narrative, yeah. in that story she's writing. And as that story progresses and the disappearances progress, we get more of an idea of her like subconscious yeah. of how she's really feeling. So uh, I still think... Um, that's being pushed, you know, by yeah. the by the invisible hand, the memory police, and the the story. I mean, that that narrative is kind of pushed by everything going on in her life. Well, so it's almost foreshadowing most of it too. Like the because she says she has quotes where she talks about how she feels when there's a disappearance coming. She just doesn't yeah. know what it is. Then in the novel, you just start seeing things like like kind of like happen first. So it's like a foreshadow to the real life. Yeah. And it's just like, like I said, more towards the end, you start to get the similarities between like the actual world she's living in and like the meta narrative. You start trying to find those connections. But I wouldn't say the memory police and those situations drive it too much. Yeah. So, so I then, think it's a lot of it's like the character connection she has with R because she's getting, when she's with the old man, they're experiencing certain things together. And then R kind of like reestablishes her commitment to staying and writing the novel, her novel, the one we were talking about, the meta narrative. It's kind of like without him, that character connection, that would never happen. It would just cease. That the whole point of her trying to seek her memories again, it would it would just vanish. The memory police would take the, the full hold over her at that point. Yeah. So, so then you you're still taking the opposite stance here, then Robert. And, yes. Uh, yeah, you're still kind of feeling that even with like the whole like invisible hand, like there's this whole grand like societal collapsing arc. You you feel like mm. the true focus of the story is actually like. The internal with with the meta narrative in mind that it's more like the internal struggle of this protagonist against like the memory police and who kind of like struggle especially when uh, novels begin getting disappeared who mm. kind of struggle to maintain and assert her identity. Yeah, because I mean, many people who reviewed the book thought that the scenarios and the obstacles were oversimplified and easily overcome, but it's not the scenarios that Ogawa wants us to focus on. It's just the way the characters communicate and work with each other and their mindset before and after each of every event that we read. That's if it's plot driven, like you get both sides of the her just like I guess um 
tolerance of it, I guess, or how she handles it. So, or like with R too, we just learned personal trials that he goes through because you can't just focus on the people who are losing memories. We got to remember that this is a main character too. Yeah. And he retains everything and he's being hidden. And so we just find out like that he's just basically being sequestered. Uh, we learn all these details through the secret correspondence between our narrator and R's wife. They kind of have a secret correspondence. Mm-hmm. And so it drives the reader to understand his story through the perspective of someone else who can still remember. And so, but still just as much as the rest of the island people. Because yeah. he's, like I said, he's disappeared too. Yeah, I think nobody knows where he's at. I that's the, there's so much like parallelism in 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 the book, mm-hmm. and that that's one of like the things that that make the book so beautiful is like that parallelism of all who has memories having to give up things, and then people who have memories like being able to be like in Out the this. open world, but, but they're also not everything. free. Yeah. Okay, but but let me ask you, let me ask you though, Robert. So, what do you think? Uh, kind of like going towards Ezra's theory about the invisible hand, about the the memory police kind of pushing this. Uh, what do you think about the fact that uh, Ogawa seems to like intentionally obscure the, the like the characters' identities and like basic facts about them? Like, uh, for instance, uh, we're still missing key pieces of like information about like each of these people. We own the, the narrator has no name. All is a letter. The old man <laughs> is the old man. Like, like what do you like? When I see that, when I see that. Uh, I think it might might give the story like a more mythic or like a timeless element where like the characters are more archetypes in it that might lend mm-hmm. itself to being more plot driven. But how do you how do you contest that? Let me ask. Well, it's the beauty of the story. I don't think Ogawa meant for it to be timeless. You know, I, I, it's going to be and it should be. But I think what she wanted to create for the readers was more of like an image that we can each see clearly in our own heads. Like who are those people? Those situations it could be anybody. We could be yeah. R. We could be the narrator. That's the memory police. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like no. we we could be the old man. Like we, you know what I mean. You don't yeah. know who we are yeah. but when you read that. It's not like really like a sympathetic feeling that you gather. It's just like I said. It, you just keep reading it, and it's kind of hard to stop reading. It, think about it because it's just it's unfathomable what they go through. I think you you the way you you describe it, it's a sketch, and that lets us put in our own ourselves, like you you said, Robert, and. We kind of make the whole island and the characters are a sketch, and the the novel itself is just like I feel like a big sketch. And so you get to, no matter how old you are, or when you read this book, whether it's today, ten years from now, you can always put in you know your own idea or your own imagery. Yeah, it. it I love that it's kind of like the book itself. You read it, and it's kind of like like a memory itself, and like it's yeah. like you get to fill in all those like details and flourishes. Like that, make memories in your own head and mm-hmm. come come to life and things like that. Um, I'm still, to be honest with you, I'm still I'm still straddling the line a little bit. Uh, I do think that the um, kind of framing the framing device and the invisible hand of like the memory police and the whole societal collapse arc is is very like important. And I think that it's this larger story going on behind the story. Mm-hmm. But I feel like for Ogawa, the true purpose of the memory police was how one woman uh, internalizes these losses and and these deep and these these aren't just like losses of memories they're also like deep violations of identity and so how she mm. copes with that how she resists that uh, how she kind of struggles to uh, get her maintain her autonomy well wow. and I, I, yeah. think it's, I think that's a great point about um like who struggle to maintain her autonomy uh, because it, it leads us like right into the meta narrative which we talked about earlier uh, which is that um, alongside the the main narrative in the memory police about the protagonist hiding, oh, there's a 
parallel narrative about a story, the story of the typist who loses her voice. Yeah, well, the beginning the narrator of the narrator, we just get small character descriptions of the two characters in the meta narrative, and a small insight of the two American characters. There's just a young student, which is a typist, that we yeah. get to learn more about, and then she's taking a typing class, and she meets the second character, who's her professor, typing professor. We learn they kind of eventually become lovers, right? And so at the same time, he mentions she's uh, her voice is disappearing, just like in our narrator's world. Uh, but she just isn't her ability to speak. So she uses a typewriter to communicate with her teacher. That kind of goes on. Getting of the story, it seems to almost foreshadow the future in the main novel, while towards its end, it parallels the darker atmosphere we follow in the main story. So like an example is the first half of the meta narrative. It snows first, and then it snows on the island. Oh, that's so creepy. So it foreshadows. I didn't even yeah. pick that up. That's creepy. Yeah, and so and then yeah, <laughs> it's kind of creepy. And it keeps happening. And later, um, both the leading female characters just lose similar characteristics that kind of define who they are, right? Like their ability to communicate. They lose. They both lose their voices. Eventually, they kind of become nothing. Yeah. And then uh, the second example is just kind of R is also trapped in a hidden room, mm-hmm. which eventually happens to the female typist. She gets kind of trapped in a room too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that, like you brought up that it uh, how like the, those two stories like progress alongside each other, and they seem to have some. Um, uh, thematic like they seem to have like a very much like a similar trajectory in unity yeah. um we only know the protagonist as a writer so the fact that ogawa would actually include this entire self-contained plot about uh not only about how she is struggling to finish a novel and then she includes like the novel itself uh, it just actually helps like flesh out the who the protagonist is more and like how much her identity is entwined in um writing yeah so i have a quote from the narrator Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. So, with like it. the main character. So mm-hmm. kind of a, if it goes on like this and we can't compensate for the things we lost, we all disappear without a trace. The old man says, maybe because you write novels, you come up with these extreme ideas. Just writing that crazy story. <laughs> I think it's good, though. Um, I, I, I like that quote, though. I mean, it kind of... It's really good. And, you know, like, uh, there's more quotes that just pertain to her writing that meta narrative, like that story. It's so fundamental her resilience. Yeah, so much Even of, though she kind of loses the battle, R always instinctively told her that that's where everything is. Like, that's where it's all at. Well, mm-hmm. I think that's a good point of the memory place. We want to, we want to like get in, we want to like just like spoiler guys it now. Well, we're about to do the deep dive. One okay, of our, can we just, our can we fun just put, segments of that. Yeah, Esco, you want to go ahead, uh, get, tell all the, tell yeah. all the viewers out all there right. that we're yeah. about to spoil some things for you. We y'all. are, yes. We're getting yeah. into the deep dive discussion uh, the triple D. <laughs> uh, we're going to get hard into, uh, we're going to take a turn towards the hard literacy criticism and look at the major themes and questions uh, that the work poses to the reader. And uh, we're going to bust out some quotes and uh, a lot of spoilers, uh, along with some secondary uh, secondary sources. So um, if you haven't read the book, pause it. You may want, this is where you may want to stop. We've been yeah. we've been holding back now, yeah. but uh, it's kind of hard to restrain yeah. yourself too. Can't yeah. really talk is. about it without giving examples <laughs> about everything. Exactly. If you're looking for the spoke notes, this is it. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't read it, pause it though. <laughs> Go ahead, man. Get yeah. started, man. I'll, I would love to throw some D's on this. So uh, <laughs> I think that um, the uh, probably first and most pertinent uh, thing that we think of uh, when we think of the memory police is its connection to the diary of Anne Frank. Uh, Ogawa openly admits that uh, the memory police in, is uh, inspired by the Diary of Anne Frank. 
um, she not only like borrows entire pl- plot elements, like the most obvious is that Ari is being hidden in the secret room from authoritarian police, but as Ogawa tells us about the uh, trials and tribulations of hiding Ari, a thematic link is established to the Diary of Van Frank as well, which is that both stories tell narratives of resistance in the style of like an intimate testimonial. Although it's never specified if the story of the memory police is being presented through the medium of a diary, uh, the book itself is told through intimate first person through an intimate first person perspective in a series of short episodic events that read pretty much like diary entries, right? Yeah, it definitely yeah. does. Yeah. Chapter. Yeah, the memory police not only recalls the plot of the diary of Anne Frank, but also metatextually mimics the writing style through that interpersonal storytelling, and then uh, also through the hyper focus on the struggle of resistance by one relatively unknown person within a grueling fascist machine. Both narratives illuminate the importance of subversion as a tool of resistance, the secret risks and quiet courage it takes to retain our individual sense of agency and identity against a holistic system of oppression. So many of our history books and literature tends to present a big-picture version of history that comes from the top down, focusing on kings, generals, presidents, CEOs. But both the Diary of Anne Frank and the Memory Police are written as testimonials as personal histories that are presented from the view of an everyday person, and thus they give us a window into the lived experience of the struggle for survival in a world that's dominated by commonplace fear and brutality. We're using interpersonal testimonial format uh, that heavily alludes to the Diary of Anne Frank, Yoko Ogawa reinforces the critical importance of subversion and active resistance as tools to assert agency and as a means of survival. Although the narrator of the memory police uh, doesn't end up leading like this great liberating revolution through her everyday attempts to fool, avoid, or outsmart the memory police, she imbues herself with a sense of agency and autonomy. And though she isn't able to change the world, but but maybe we don't know that, uh, she is able to change a life. Maybe those are not too far apart. No, yeah, I, I think that um, so much of uh, the memory police is is also wrapped up in not only the diary of Anne Frank, but also like the, the greater history of the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love how you say that it uh, has that personal uh, perspective of uh, not the higher class kings and generals, but the everyday people. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, people's history of the United States, um, how that was, you know, History just kind of turned and, down. And I have to say that, uh, uh, me, I, I loved um, how Ogawa decided to do that. How you don't really, how you learn about the memory police in a place of knowledge that's centered from somebody who would be wanting to avoid the memory police. You know, someone does, you don't want to find out, you don't want to interact with them, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they destroy part, like, the memory police are basically just not Nazi Germany. Yeah. That, that's what it basically described as in the book. They destroy property, the, they get more aggressive. You know, they start taking people off the streets. They're just kind of terrorizing everybody. And, uh, yeah, we were just kind of left completely, but they're left completely nothing, too, just like everybody else. At the end of it, they're just left with nothing, completely dehumanized. And that's yeah. just like a tragic comparison that Ogawa uses, too. I, I always wondered, because they don't really get into it, uh, but, I mean, how did the memory police lose everything too? I mean, I know they just, you know, they were keeping things because like, there's one point where they lose their limbs or like they start losing their legs but still attached. Yeah. They're walking fine. Exactly. You know, it's like, oh man, what an abstract Because you know they know what things are still. That's why I was wondering like maybe if they just like turned them into memory police. Yeah. One scene where she goes to the off, like the memory police office 
And I think she gives them coffee. Yeah. So we kind of know that they, they still have yeah. these things in their well, possession, you know. Well, I think that, that by the end of the novel, I, I think that, like, when, when the novel kind of, like, shifts, like, seasons stop happening, um, they, things get more dire, there's, like, famines and things like that. I think it's implied that the memory police are gone too. I think that uh, yeah. the narrator even says, like to all, like go out there. There's no one out there. You know, mm-hmm. the memory yeah. police are gone. And so I think that that's part of like Yoko Gawa's commentary on authoritarianism mm-hmm. is that ultimately these people end up destroying themselves. You know, through mm-hmm. their attempts to control, they ultimately end up. Yeah, because they they leave once everything's gone. They're not that's looking true. for anybody because everything's gone at that point. By the end of the book, everything's disappeared. People disappeared. The people who remain, I guess. Yeah, it's all kind of like meta, like. That's just one of those things you have to kind of hard to have an imagery for her setting. Yeah, really. there's a lot of it's very metaphorical, subjective uh, ending, and how you kind of take the plot and themes. Um, uh, that's interesting. I, I, I always every time I think about it more and more uh, with Nazi Germany, I think there's uh, plenty of uh, parallels, and I think there's probably a big insight of. Maybe how you said it was a testimony, I mean, uh, and a reflection of Nazi Germany. I mean, there's probably someone who saw their world similar to this, you know, back in the 1930s and 40s. Also, a crazy thing, too, is like, you know, who can really say that all that stuff happened? We have history books and stuff, and we have all that, but people are starting to die. Survivors are getting old. You know, those memories, those stories are being told. Yeah. But, you know, like it, the comparisons to the book, Ogawa really tries to hit it, too, because if you've read Anne Frank, there's a part where. She's going to the house. It's raining, and then when they take R, when R stinks over, it's raining. Just to add small comparisons to, kind of like a, like I said, it is a testament to Anne Frank's novel or her diary. Yeah, really a novel. But I think um, she loved it too. She was inspired by it. She's the one yeah. of the first books she's ever read. She had it on her desk most of her life. Is a copy of it on her desk. That's right. Yeah, so. yeah. She peppers so many uh, allusions. I mean, not only like like borrowing the plot points and stuff like that, but she also peppers like so many allusions itself to the diary of Anne Frank. In the memory place, like what you were talking about, the day that R comes, it's raining super heavy, just like the day that Anne Frank uh, co- goes to stay uh, in the uh, secret annex. Sorry. Yeah. It's also raining. Right. Yeah. Right. And then I, I do. I do. Y'all want to hear something mm-hmm. cool, though? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I have a pretty cool theory about uh, about uh, the me- the memory police and okay. like its its connection to uh, like um, the diary of Anne Frank. All right. So think. So get this. I'm about to blow y'all's mind. So get this. Uh, like during the we we know that like during the Nazi regime, uh, the Nazis had attempted to purge like any and all cultural artifacts deemed like oh, degenerate. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and like because of that, like so many like books, pieces of art, music uh, were burned, and they were completely lost in the Nazi purge. We have mm-hmm. pieces of art, pieces of books we will will never be able to get back as the Nazi purge, right? Mm-hmm. However, one seminal piece of literature uh, that survived the Nazi purge by virtue of the fact that was that it was hidden away. Uh, was the diary of Anne Frank. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so in, in the same way, maybe, that we understand the diary of Anne Frank as a, uh, as a, as a relic that was, uh, that, as a, like a historical document that survived the Nazi purge, could we like actually interpret uh, the, the memory police as like a uh, artifact, a cultural artifact that survived like this uh, secret purge by the virtue oh. that it so was like- hidden in the same in the room with the art. story with the meta narrative yeah. with yeah. another meta narrative. Um, yeah, like this we, is that's a great idea. So this book, I mean, it could have been picked up by someone else, you know, and like, then published. Yes, you know? <laughs> like this could, book could have been yeah. like the diary of the unnamed protagonist from mm-hmm. this civilization that existed so far. We don't remember it, but yeah, somebody just found this hidden in like this diary hidden in the bottom in J- like yeah. hidden in some little basement in Japan or something. And like, 
But, so that'd be kind of cool. Yeah, in the, in the secret room. <laughs> well, for sure, the story inside is the testament to like her capability or her ability to keep her memories there. And she says it herself when 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 everything's disappeared, her body's disappeared, and Ara's about to leave the room. Finally, she just says, "Oh, I'm, and I'm glad I'm leaving my memories behind," because she's leaving it in the room that Ara was in, where he had his memory trinkets too. Yeah, it was like a collection of like his things that disappeared that he remembers, and then the items that her mother had saved that they found later. So the book's there with her. Like that's her, that's it. Cause she remembers. Maybe, maybe I'm how to write. Cause she forgets how to write. Cause novels, that's the important part. Maybe I'm just getting like too fantastical with the thinking. Cause we were about to talk about <laughs> the magical realism and stuff. Oh, like the, that. Yeah, the dystopia. We all, yeah, yeah. We yeah. all wanted to talk about some Orwellian. Uh, yeah, well, well, it's cause the book is like, it, it's so like dystopian novels in the U S have gotten like so popular and stuff like that. People mm-hmm. just love, Anything dystopian, maybe for very obvious reasons. Uh, yeah, it's a it's just a sharp rise in interest in those kind of dystopian literatures, and so yeah. people have been obsessed with it. Crazy year, man. Huh? It's been a crazy oh, year, especially <laughs> now. But I mean, with the people in America have always kind of liked those things. You know, That's true. They like the all powerful governmental thing, uh, like 1984. Yeah, you know, they yeah. love reading about those mm-hmm. things. So, like the Hunger Games. So, brief, oh, and briefly <laughs> looking over many of the popular dystopias of the last forty or so years, many are structured according to a grounded realist vein of power. Politics, which seeks to perpetually subjugate every working class. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah, I, no, I definitely get yeah. that. Yeah, well, that's mm-hmm. always what it is. Like, there's always the classes of yeah, the pagoles or yeah. whatever they are. I totally mispronounce that. Anything, they'll do like <laughs> levels of walls or whatever, mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. But however, Ogawa presents us with a more like fantastic uh, dystopia. Like, it's more magical. Like, every, even the Metanerve has a lot of magical realism in it, too. Yeah. Like, and the, but in the memory, police Ogawa combines cruelty and brutalism for the of the thought of. Leasing, so Big Brother with magical realism to characters and actually forgetting the things that have disappeared and how the disappearance is beginning to shape life on the island. So when seasons disappear, the island begins to come covered with more snow. And then the island just kind of falls into a deep winter. Then we just get natural causes like famine and uh, just assume that people forget and that they're simply living or uh, kind of with a blind eye mm-hmm. and kind of playing dumb or just forcing themselves to repress the memories. We don't really know what's mm-hmm. causing it for them. Yeah, that, that use of... Okay, that was like heavy use of like magical realism, and I guess in this case we can can we call it dark magical realism? <laughs> we well, for sure, like we don't like the magical realism is kind of like how I think Ezra described it once. We're not sure how the memories disappeared, right? but in the meta narrative, there's one specific point where the typist says that he traps like he was teaching a second girl, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and it seems like he's like pampering her to get taken too, mm-hmm. and he says, um, "Well, once she's not a very good typist, but her voice is beautiful." Once she gets typing, her words will be more into the type the typewriter. And once the keys lock up, I'll have her voice too. So he right. kind of sensed that he, and like the other parts where he touches the first girl's arm, the main character, and she kind of starts losing her voice. So there's like a real sense of understanding why they kind of lost their voice. But for us and the memory police, still kind of balancing whether or not it's the memory police themselves, the island, if it's a mental thing that the people are going through. Well, I think uh, there's definitely that theme of magicalism. As if you read other uh, books on that subject, uh, in this genre, I mean, things that are magical are explained ordinarily. It's, that's kind of how these disappearances are. Yeah. Um, and so you know when they're totally commonplace, people don't even freak yeah, out about them. Yeah. I know. Yeah, they just go on living, and it's like uh, the guy who makes hats just kind of. Gives it up and starts making umbrellas. You, you know? mean, yeah. you, you mean yeah. the haberdasher has to give up haberdashery? <laughs> he does. <laughs> <laughs> well, like what other like dystopian books had like the magical realism? None, and I mm-hmm. think well, well, there might be some 
Because it was for sure like you got those answers, right? Like off the top of my head, I can't really. I mean, looking at the popular dystopian literature of like the last 20 years, I can't really think of anything. I mean, even in like Brave New World, they had something that explained it, which was like the mm-hmm. pill that they took, you know? Yeah. Um, in, in, in like the 1984, it's all about like this real hard, like the, that power politics you mentioned, like wanting to like subjugate uh, the working class for like these like real politic means. But in like the memory police, it's like much more literary and abstract. And I think yeah. that Ogawa's uh, use of magical realism, that is like when something is literally, when something is disappeared, it literally disappears from like the minds of the people. Uh, I think they force it to, well, they have to get rid of everything. That's why when the, they lose their limbs, they're not sure what to do. Yeah. Like, they chop it off, you know, but, but they just kind of adapt and walk oddly. But the memory police again, are able to keep walking. So is it magic that but, they're using? But the final trick, we can mm. get into the spoilers. Oh, I was like, okay, good. We get into the spoilers. Now the final oh, yeah, trick, we're in that discussion, yeah, the yeah. final trick is that she disappears. She actually begins to, I think her body's still there though. I was just listening to it today. And I think, no, she it, says, this, she it, says her voice she slithers in like metaphorically, but I think her body still exists. Like, cause she's laying in between the harmonica Maybe like she just something. doesn't understand that she's walking. Yeah, I think she just doesn't understand that she's that. No, down. check it out. I actually have a, a, a quote quote about this. I, got, I actually I, got a quote from this. Too. Yeah, it's uh, if you're looking at like the paperback cover of the Memory Police, it's page two seventy three. It's like at the very end of the book. Um, it starts at the very bottom. It was becoming more difficult to breathe. I looked around. Yeah, okay. My body was now included among the objects arranged on the floor. I lay there between the music box and the harmonica, my two legs protruding at odd angles, my hand crossed on my chest, my eyes lowered. In the same way he had wound the sprung on the music box or blown into the harmonica, I imagined R would now caress my body in order to call forth memory. Yeah, and then she also no. is like, once he leaves, he's, she says she's conti- she continues to disappear. But her voice disappears first. I think, I don't know, because maybe, because there's another part where he says he reached out and grabbed at the air where he imagined my voice. Yeah. So maybe she isn't in the room with him. What I'm imagining though is that like her soul is like leaving her body and like R under understands that. I think he maybe not the soul because I think he the meta narrative existing is a testament to her soul. It's like how she like tries so to I preserve think her soul. Yeah, because like I said, she says to him, it's nice to know that she's leaving her memories behind. Mm-hmm. So it is. A te- it's great. I think it's a phenomenal ending because at the end of the meta narrative, um, the girl just disappears too. She just kind of yeah. sinks in, and then you get the, yeah. the second <laughs> second victim comes in, mm-hmm. and it's like I said, they describe how kind of like he. I think he does it. It's something he has an influence over it too. Like we know he does, obviously, because he's saying once the keys lock up. He, you mean the evil guy, the, the evil, evil guy in the meta okay, narrative? Okay. Yeah, the one yeah. who's like the like abusing the, yeah, the no, yeah. he's not the prof- he's like his professor, the type of professor. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. But yeah, so I think it's, but it's kind of hard to compare those two. I wouldn't compare like a male to a male, so I wouldn't compare our guy. Yeah, yeah. There's um, something I think it's probably the memory police is the that, but I'm I'm glad you you, you brought that up because because that that did kind of like when I was trying to figure out like the meta narrative in my head and it's kind of like plot unity with mm-hmm. uh, the larger uh, narrative in the memory police. I was a little confused as to who the evil, we can call him the evil Professor Ray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> okay, no. good, yeah. yeah I, I was evil. a little confused as to who the evil Professor represented because in some ways he does represent, he does fulfill that role that I fulfills to yeah. the protagonist in some very... You know what I thought? Definitely. I thought it would be the narrator. Before, like, 
but but then at the 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 end of the novel at the end of the meta narrative it's like he we find out that he's actually like evil and he's abducting her and he's holding her captive oh because so it's romantic at like, the beginning so, okay, so it's like yeah, yeah, is yeah. he like a little like oh is he like the the is it like a stand-in for like the memory police well it's like i said i don't think you should think of it as like a gender thing because comparing the two because i was thinking in a weird abstract way that it's the narrator maybe she feels this guilt of confining r and it's kind of like same thing you know like what he's doing to her is just kind of losing her voice, but then it's also hers, the girl. It's her story. Yeah, she can do whatever I she wants. I think it's like a dream, and and it's a dream in that these things are tangled, and there's a little bit of R in. Oh, I know what you in mean. In the professor, yeah. and a little bit of R in the the character that she's writing about, the typewriter, typewritist, uh, and then the memory police are of course kind of. Tangled into the characteristics of the professor that's teaching him, and like the forcing over her losses, and these things are kind of convoluted because she's still just kind of talking about her emotions and her reactions to these yeah. experiences. And at the end of the novel is when it gets the strangest because it's not her conscious writing; it's her subconscious writing. Because mm-hmm. at that point, uh, novels had already disappeared. Yeah, you know, um, and so. I think about this quote when novels disappeared. She, she's looking at it and she says, novels have d- disappeared. Even if we keep the manuscripts, the books, they're nothing more than empty boxes. Books with nothing inside. You can peer into them, listen carefully, sniff the con- contents, but they're signifying nothing. So what could I possibly write? She's talking to R, that yeah. one, right? Yeah, because when they, get, when they start burning the books... That's really significant. I think that's a changing point to everything. Oh, yeah. that's Yeah, because uh, you get the, the quote where this girl's like, a, she's yeah. like that Antifa girl where she's on the burning books. She's like, you can't take away the stories. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's wearing a hat. Hats are disappeared. and then But it sticks with the narrator the whole way. And she's just like, yeah. And she tells R. And then like, that's when they kind of get intimate. Mm-hmm. The meta narrator starts to get, yeah. not intimate, but those kind of same contrasts. Yeah. Too. Yeah. I mean, but that to- totally dives into the book that she's writing. Mm. And you know she gets a new job, and uh, but then, you know, she forgets how to write eventually completely, and she but R makes her write, you know, and she she doesn't even have that voice, or she doesn't even know what she's writing. Well, they both lose their Paper. voice, right? So it's cool because like in the meta narrative, remember how I said there's like a second victim later on that we find out yeah. kind of when she's like changing into the walls, the second girl kind of knocks first, right, mm-hmm. and then uh, she goes downstairs. She never enters the room. Okay, but so we don't know if she's a physical being either, kind of like if we don't know the narrator stays physical when she starts disappearing. Yeah. But then the type, the professor comes back and he goes, she's kind of confused on like why he let that happen, right? Because he let her go up there because there used to be some uh, clock room, right, in the tower that she's at. It was, a, it was a clock tower and some old man used to operate it and the second victim knew the old man, so she wanted to go up there. And so she was thinking, why would you let, why would you let her come up here? He goes, because I know that you're not capable, that you know that you're not capable of coming back into the real world. You've lost so much. Yeah. You're just nothing at this point. You've lost your voice. You're basically just absent. And we kind of start seeing that in the real world for the memory police, too, on the island for our narrator. She starts becoming absent, too. Yeah, is that... Is that and she the, loses her voice also. And that that's the moment uh, before books disappear? Or is that, like, after? That's after. after yeah, because yeah, she's got to remember how to write uh. again. Because I think oh, when she was writing her novels, I think she actually wrote with pencil. I don't think she was a typist. Yeah, yeah. I think she was writing everything by hand, but then yeah. she kind of 
But she's still, no matter she's what, had to learn and how to work I, with her. I think at the end of the novel, she mentions, like, she's, like, trying to write it with, like, her, her mouth. Isn't she, like, trying to write Not it Not her mouth. Like, no, she just loses her hands. Like, yeah. it's her right hand first, and she's just losing her left hand. Does she have to, like, write mouth. with her, like, pinky toe? <laughs> no. <laughs> My left foot. That'd be crazy. <laughs> just her head. No, I'm so glad that you uh, you brought, brought the conversation uh, back to the meta narrative, because I think that in, like, uh, talking about, like, still, like, like, coming back to that magical realism, I mm. think that, like, the meta narrative uh, ends up foreshadowing the the regular story like the events in the story in like a magical and kind of like fan abstract kind of fantastical way makes it fun yeah and it's like I said it makes it um discussions just immense you can go all over the place with it trying yeah. to oh yeah. It. There, yeah there's so many different themes so many things you can uh, talk about in this book so I feel like it, I'm so glad you got us to read this book Robert because if I had read this just on my own I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. No, oh yeah, I definitely wanted people, people to talk to about it. For sure. I knew exactly who to tell to. Read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been great. I suggest it for everybody. I think it's going to be one of the like we have a top one hundred books for like the past like what two hundred years, right? Yeah, I think oh, this book's going to be like for our generation. Like if we decided to do our own top one hundred, this could take the place of like something by George Orwell or Alex Brad or, or, or Ray Bradbury. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. It's yeah, just, it just takes it up there. Or Alex mm-hmm. Hudley, Alex. Aldous Aldous Huxley. Huxley. Yeah. Aldous Huxley. Huxley. No, yeah. I, I love it. It's like the, <laughs> it's definitely up there. She did that herself with a book just like this, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like the the post the postmodern dystopia, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think during yeah. the times of nineteen eighty four there were problems, but she didn't want to compare it like that. No. I don't think so. but she's just a fantastic writer, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great to be able to put yourself into this story and kind of paint the world how you want you know, you get to paint this island and you kinda get these themes away from it and then you get this uh importance of memory that we've been wanting to talk about i mm-hmm. i think which is the biggest takeaway for the book mm-hmm. uh, myself um i know you guys wanted to talk about the importance of memory please right I think you can go first Ezra. oh yeah you can start us off here man oh, go ahead um man so for me uh i always thought about this was like a parallel to all timers um you know cuz a lot of people uh, in senior homes or just have... That's in my blood. Yeah. <laughs> That's scary, man. It is Sorry. scary. Um, but, you know, I, I just, you know, as you get older, you know, you have to leave your home that you live there for your whole life and go into, you know, a nursing home or maybe a different home, apartment. So you kind of go down into, uh, like, a confined space like R has, you know. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you end up losing all these little objects that you've collected your whole life and so i feel like this book was just like i guess this is a new perspective on how it feels to get old i don't know i'm only 25 (laughs) you know like look if people who are like before they get older they're obviously older right they have alzheimer's but you know as they're so capable they tell you stories of their life you know that's what we travel on too and it's like i said in the book the most important aspect for memories to be able to sustain with our characters were stories well yeah that's super important so i i feel like you know how they look at books and they don't really realize what it is or yeah, birds they don't realize what they are it's she like, actually man, starts remembering like, stuff like that though oh no nice. yeah, there's a thing a bird shows up and she remembers yeah. what it is yeah I, but i think that that's kind of maybe i haven't studied all time if you're out there and listening you can teach me something but, um you know, you, you'll probably see it and you can recognize me, you know, maybe a family member's mm. face and then some days you don't. Uh, and so I think it's a lot like that. That's kind of how these disappearances are. 
uh, in, in the book. At least that's what I was thinking of. And man, it, it's such a big identity to have that memory and to put that emotion into it. So uh, the perfume or something like that, the memory you get from that. Scene. Well, so we have to remember the character that we get to read about is a novelist. And she says it herself that the library is pretty much absent all the time. Yep. Nobody buys her books. But when they start burning the books, she kind of realizes how many people have books. Yeah. So, and like I said, we have like a somebody who's a protester who's out there screaming and going crazy, saying you can't burn, you can't take the stories. Yeah. So it, I think that's super significant to just like what Ogawa wanted us to understand. What you know, talking about the the importance of memory too. It's also like important to note that like when things uh, in the book uh, get disappeared, for instance, like the roses that we like doing the novels and stuff mm. like that. It's not just the physical item itself that that's destroyed. It's also like uh, the gar- the former gardener. You know, when she had that uh, conversation when when they're throwing out the roses with oh, the former yeah. gardener, and there's this very deep sense of resignation. Or later, we find out her own internal struggle when novels are disappeared, and we find out how she reacts to like a, a part of her, uh, mm-hmm. a very like deep and central part of her being like destroyed or having forced to be forgotten and so the character she talks about the roses her husband like grew them for competitions and she i think her nails are painted that color yeah. too. oh for, they were always tending somebody, the roses yeah. and it's like she's were, never gonna lose that she's gonna mm-hmm. lose that color in her nails too it's like it's not just the item that disappears it's yeah. like all these the memories and the the experiences around it but it's like you said patty maybe this is her st- maybe the memory police is like some testament to all that that existed on that island mm-hmm. and but no but really i think her, I think this story is great. I think this is what should last because whenever you read these other dystopian novels, that's what that's what they go for first. They they, they knock out the books. Yeah. You know, they try to eliminate that the, the pursuit of knowledge in any circumstance. That's memory. That's history. That's interpretation. That's people. I actually, I, I got it. If y'all don't mind, if y'all don't mind, I have. I a, do mind, Patty. Okay, well, <laughs> too bad. I'm sure the read, the the listeners don't. Uh, that I have a quote uh, from the Memory Police about uh, the importance of memory. I have one too, but you can go. Oh, okay, okay, okay. It's um, page uh, 232. It's uh, Arya speaking, and he says, Even if the whole island disappears, this room will be here, Arya said. His tone was calm, filled with love, as though he were reading an inscription engraved on a stone monument. Don't we have all the memories preserved in here in this room? The emerald, the map, the photograph, the harmonica, the novel? Everything. This is the very bottom of the mind swamp, the place where memories come to rest. I loved that part of the story, honestly, yeah. too. The and I, mind swamp. Yeah, and I feel like that that idea. I loved. Oh, I got nerd chills when you said that. Yeah, I think of that idea of the mind swamp, and that's to me, that's what the power of of memory is. It's this swamp in our minds where all these like primordial, like not that clarity is not really there, yeah, but it's, it's not. The, where do you get that that object? Kind of makes it clarify, but. Yeah, I mean, think of how many just like in our own heads. Think of how many memories we have, and like stuff didn't actually happen, <laughs> but we remember so. it that way. Oh yeah, really? Oh you know? okay, yeah. It's kind of like you're saying with the meta narrative could be an interpretation like that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I have yeah. one from Ogawa herself. Oh yeah, uh, talking about stories, and she says, "Only by having a story are people able to connect the body and soul, the outer and inner worlds, the conscious and unconscious into one." She does that with this book. Oh yeah, definitely. For three people and hopefully for thousands more. Well, yeah, I mean, it's up for awards, so it's definitely hitting on people. Yeah. Uh, I like how, it maybe a little bit off topic, but uh, same kind of idea. I mean, the importance of memory is just like, 
another theme in the book, but there's also uh, the resilience of their like spirit. Yeah. For R, the old man, and main character, you know, have uh, R gives him those gifts to um, do those little rituals in the morning, playing with the... Playing with the, uh, winding up the music box, yeah. hoping hoping he will feel something. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And even though he knows it's not working, he does it every morning. Mm-hmm. And he does it and patiently, just, too. Yeah, so patiently. And just like, even with them adapting into this harsh life, they, they still have like those moments of like, Never gets upset with them either. Like, yeah. Ever. So he's so patient, so kind, so giving, you know. I don't want to um, do that. It, was, it was really cool. I, I think, like, you could do a big, uh, if you, if, oh, you know what? If you have to pick a book to do a paper on, definitely do this. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> you'll be right. You'll, yeah. you'll end up writing a whole book out of this, yeah. too. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> let us know. Um, yeah, I, let I, us let read us that paper yeah. if you do that. I, we'll I, edit. I love that you, um, you, bring it, you bring it to that because I think that um, just maybe, like, talking about the importance of memory and, and testimonials and stuff like that. Uh, it, it's so important to like preserve that that lived in experience and like the the even though they didn't feel anything with the music box, they were they were trying to feel and it was like this form of like actively trying to resist the power of of the memory police. I recommend everybody read it. Yeah, it's something that's like if you can't find yourself in that somehow, or if you, just reading. Or what do you think? Everybody should find some kind of connection to the story. Yeah. Like this yeah. Is, it's, I don't think it's too hard to critique it in a negative way. I think it's written in a way that's just more important for an overall picture that lasts longer than just the story itself. It's so timeless. Like understanding what the memory police are. Like that's yeah. kind of important. We'd like it, but I think what we get is it's honestly a masterpiece. Well, the, the thing is the, the book is so like multifaceted and metaphorical that the memory police can be interpreted as like, an authoritarian police force akin to, to Nazi Germany. Mm. But at the same time, the memory police can also be equated to like, maybe like this is a story going on in someone's head and this is how like Alzheimer's, okay, the yeah. memory police are like oh, Alzheimer's yeah. or like a disease that takes mm. away your memories or something yeah. like that, you know? So many different... That it's so like, yeah. Even I hope like they make a movie that is not just like a weird adaptation of the book and they call it the memory police and the movie's just completely obscure to the book, you know? They make it like where she's crazy. Oh man, because they do stuff like because it's up for that. this book's up for interpretation. Don't say that. You know, like don't if you're, say that. That's the whole purpose of it. You can make this into anything. It's yeah. great, like what Patty was saying. I, um, I hope it's not her just like in a room like crazy because I feel like that's uh, just I'm a cop gonna, out. Uh, that's a cop out, man. I'll tell you what. If, they, if we find out that they're about to Shyamalan the memory place, I think that we're all three going to take a little road trip from Texas to LA. <laughs> but uh, so can we get? Uh, uh, yeah, I we think can, we should start wrapping up. And yeah, wrap it uh, up. Can Patty can some, talk about the next episode. Yeah. Well, can we do some? We can, we can do some closing statements on. Yeah. A little bit of I don't know if we're allowed to be like Jerry Springer. <laughs> a little bit of final thoughts to what Mary Police overall. If you see it on, oh, if you see the cover, judge it because it looks awesome. I feel like that book looks great. Mm-hmm. I, I said just uh, suggest spending the money on getting the hardcover because it looks sick. I hope we'll have pictures up on that so you can see what it looks like, or you can just get the. But I recommend everybody get it. Sit down. The audiobooks there too. Hit us up. We want to know what you think about the book. That's the whole point of this. Why your discussion on it too? So yeah, and get I think if you're gonna read it, get someone to read it with you. Oh yeah, it's one person because you gotta talk about this with other people. So you feel free to message us or something. Oh yeah, you can. uh, Maybe we'll do some kind of chat uh, online. Yeah, this you should definitely. I think every book you read, you should have a discussion with along with it Mm -hmm. because if it's a good book, it's worth sharing. Oh, and that is uh, definitely this is one that's definitely worth sharing for sure.
Um, yeah, I guess me me looking at my final thoughts on the memory police, uh, going back to like the final theme about you know call the memory police, going back to that final theme about uh, the importance of memory. I think that when we look at like the novel itself, I think it's maybe like important to, to think about that like the only people like that society eventually collapses because of this authoritarian police force which attempts to purge or police the memories and thoughts of people and that the only people that were survived that survived were the ones that had the ability to remember people like our you know and so as, as society collapses for those that forget it feels like Ogawa kind of like is telling the reader that memory and memory as a power has like true weight and that it's the duty of the people that remember the people like our to carry on the promise to, like, not forget the sacrifices that the unnamed narrator had made and to, like, reshape the future. Nobody can see this right now, but there's tears coming down my eyes. Mic drop. Oh, my Dang. gosh, thank you. Mic drop. Man, that was that really was good. good. That yeah. was great. Should, yeah. Good thing we saved you for last. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, uh, that wraps up for the memory, please, yeah. right? Um, but we do have a lot more planned. Uh, the season will be translated okay. literature. Literature yeah. and translation, we're only going to read uh, books that are originally not in English. <laughs> yeah. Did you want to talk about the next book, Ezra? Or did you, Patty, want to uh, go? Who wants to go for it? Yeah, you guys can. One of you, yeah. uh, Robert, I know you're really excited. Oh, yeah, you, about how it. about you introduce it? I'll yeah. do the little teaser. Okay. How about yeah. that? Let's Sounds like good. That. Yeah. So our next book is going to be Till. I personally enjoyed that story. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's by the Austrian German author Daniel Kelman. Getting pretty out there. He's had the uh, movies from his other short stories already in America. Yeah. Uh, Till follows the story of a famous trickster. So it's just, uh, you get to see some cool stuff. Go, I guess, guess Patty could say it and yeah, I'll, I'll uh, see where we go. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so, yeah, Till is kind of, uh, it's written by the uh, famous, uh, acclaimed Austrian German fabulist Daniel Kelman. And Till follows the story of the uh, aforementioned famous trickster figure and German folk character Till Uhlenspiegel. Kelman transports uh, Thiel Uhlenspiegel from the Dark Ages to 1600s Europe and into the thick of that brutal uh, Thirty Years' War between the Protestants and the Catholics. Uh, in, in the thick of this war, uh, Thiel must struggle to survive as a royal jester uh, in the face of court intrigue, crown politics, and a war-torn Europe. Well, I don't think he struggles. The whole point of the book is he kind of glides through like. That's why they picked that character. You can't give it away like that. <laughs> well, it's because it's not really a struggle because I think what Daniel Kemen wanted to do was the struggle was the war. He's like using Till Ugenspiel to give that um, that insight who kind of just has a different route to take. We see like the real experience through his eyes, but not really Till's. You see like what he's capable of doing. It's a great book. It's like a fairy tale and I'm very Eager to talk about that oh, for our yeah. next episode. Very different yeah. from the memory, please. Definitely taking a change of pace. Oh, most definitely. Uh, well, except the political side. It's definitely got its political oh, yeah, stances, definitely too. Political yeah. It's a pretty cool yeah. comparison. It's a great second book to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm super excited uh, for Till. We're going to be doing a lot of research for it, too. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a lot of... If, if you have questions about Till, feel free to contact if you have us. Stuff or answers, yeah. If you have answers for us. Yeah. If somebody wants to he tell just, us, if somebody just wants to like give us like the the spoke notes on the thirty years war, we'd love that. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Send us your YouTube videos, whatever. If you're, uh, yeah. uh, you know so much about it, maybe you can yeah. get on the show. If with you us. know yeah. the royal lineage of Bohemia, please leave a comment. <laughs> <laughs> if you're related to the Winter Queen and yeah. King, let us know. Yeah, uh, a lot of work you guys have done. So much research uh, into this uh, 
Facebook. And I just want to say thank you to you guys. Oh, also, thank you uh, to thank Zach you, uh, yeah. for letting us use your reco- recording <laughs> studio. Thank Zach you. Zach Hammeter, look He's him up. Yeah. <laughs> he does great work, and um, it sounds nice because of him, pretty much. Of so, yeah. Uh, if you're if you're not annoyed by the quality, if you enjoy the quality, it's because of Zach. Thank you, Zach. Um, so, make sure to check out our website. Follow us on social media. Uh, we'll be back soon with another episode and other things in between. And you can follow more on the website, shbcpodcast.com. And uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Go read Memory Police. See you yeah. next Sunday, Hustlings. Yeah.